Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Just follow the spiders, and they're sure to lead you into the Forbidden Forest. Now, this promises to be an extra-long segment today, dear listeners, as I am angry about a lot of stuff to do with bodies and otherness in the wizarding world. So one of the themes that's really important in this book is that of bullying. Mm-hmm. And the book brings it up a lot. Um, when Black is confronting Peter Pettigrew, he refers to Voldemort as the biggest bully in the playground, mm-hmm. for example. Um, or Harry uses the verb bullying to describe how Snape is treating his students, particularly Neville. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of interest in this sort of the problem of the bully and uh, this interesting sort of metaphor where the way that children treat each other on a schoolyard, the way that Malfoy treats the other kids, the way that Malfoy is treating Harry or trying to, um, is essentially equivalent to the way that Voldemort treats everybody, right? Yes. Which is just that it's a form of bullying. But what's really interesting is that the book itself is enacting this really troubling form of bullying mm-hmm. at the level of how it talks about characters. And that is with regards to fatness. Mm-hmm. This book hates fat people. Yeah. And we've talked in the past about the way that Rowling falls back on problematic tropes to describe characters Mm -hmm. that may not be intentionally hateful, but that that doesn't matter when it comes to falling back on offensive and problematic tropes. Mm -hmm. Um, And her use of fatness as a way of characterizing villainous characters is a through line throughout the whole book series and is really, really disturbing. For me as a reader with the radical idea that like fat people are also people and should be treated as such. Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's shocking. So we have a couple of, there's a couple of characters who are plump. Mm-hmm. Right? Likeable characters can be plump. Mrs. Weasley and the um, food trolley witch yeah. on the um, Hogwarts Express are plump. But fatness is reserved for the worst characters, mm-hmm. specifically for Uncle Vernon and for Dudley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've made a list here of all of the times that Dudley is described as being fat. So he's introduced as being Harry's enormous cousin. Yeah. The next scene we see him in. This is how he's described. His piggy little eyes fixed on the screen and his five chins wobbling as he ate continually. Mm. When Dudley does anything, his body parts have to be... You have to make sure that readers remember that he's fat. So he pointed with a fat finger. There's a description of something he does with his porky shoulder. He's Mm -hmm. clutching money in his fat fist. He's described when, what's the aunt's name? Marge. When Aunt Marge is coming to visit, it says Dudley came waddling down the hall, a bow tie just visible under his many chins. So this is 
remarkably hateful language. And it's hateful language that is using as its target um, what are sort of the last acceptable, publicly acceptable targets of hate, oh, yes. right? And it's acceptable to hate fat people because they're responsible for it and because it's a sign of um, moral weakness. Yeah. I wrote down a couple of things about Marge because I found that the way that she was presented was particularly stereotypical. And I really felt like even calling the chapter Aunt Marge's big mistake It's a fat joke. Do you get it? Yeah, it's a fat joke. And what it subtly, or not so subtly actually, implies is that Marge's big mistake is being a fat bitch. Like, that's what she does wrong. Mm -hmm. She's a bitch and she's fat. The fact that she's associated with dogs and the fact that she is described distinctly as fat, as Vernon and Dudley, unlike Petunia, who is horsey and thin, thin mm-hmm. makes Aunt March particularly villainous and in a really fucked up and troubling way. And I got the sense that Marge's enormity was supposed to be a kind of metaphor for complacency and luxury and cruelty mm-hmm. in a very different way than say, the luxury and the cruelty and complacency of people like the Malfoys or even Petunia, right? Mm -hmm. That Marge's major failing isn't just that she's a mean and nasty person, but it's that she's a mean, nasty person combined with the fact that she's fat. Yeah. Yeah. And that somehow her fatness um, is a sign, right? And that's, it's this way. It's that Fatness becomes a way that you can read people in the world. Because if you're fat, then there must be something wrong with you. Yes. And if there is something wrong with you, um, then you deserve to be hated, Mm -hmm. right? That you've brought it on yourself in some way. And so this is a, a series of books that's so interested in sort of defending people against prejudice, right? Mm -hmm. It's full of these characters who maybe seem one way when you first encounter them, but you're pushed to think twice, right? To think twice about Neville as just being this useless character and to see him sort of gradually exposed as being somebody who has value. To think twice about the way that Hagrid is perhaps a sort of monstrous figure or Lupin is socially Mm -hmm. ostracized because he's a werewolf. That the difference of characters is where their value lies. And that extends to everybody except these fat characters. Because in this case, their fatness is not the cause of their being othered, Mm -hmm. but rather the visual symptom of the ways in which they are already reprehensible as people, Mm -hmm. right? Which is that they are complacent and stupid and self-satisfied and sort of rooted in this culture of normalcy and that what people like that look like is fat, Mm -hmm. right? And so I don't have much more to say about it other than that it is, it's really hateful Mm -hmm. and that it disappoints me in a series of books that I think otherwise is really pushing back against this sort of knee-jerk hatefulness Mm -hmm. and that it's a sort of sign for us that no matter how inclusive you try to be, there's always another frontier of hate. That if we're trying to include everybody in a community of who counts as a legitimate subject, Mm -hmm. you've always got to have somebody who's beyond the borders. Yeah. Right? Because that's how it works. And so in this case, who gets pushed beyond the borders? It's these fat characters. And what was really interesting is once I'd started looking for it, something else became very clear for me, which is that the fat characters are not only excluded at the level of um, they're not sort of legitimate subjects, they're Mm -hmm. not people who we should care about or people whose feelings or life ambitions matter, but they also literally cannot fit into the spaces of the book, which is that the book repeatedly tells you that spaces can only be occupied by thin bodies. So it starts when Harry gets the Marauder's Map and finds the secret entrance in the statue's hump. And it says, the statue's hump opened wide enough to admit a fairly thin person. Like, why include that as a detail, right? Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, 
the only function of that is to make it very clear that certain bodies can and cannot participate in this narrative. Yeah. And that's really emphasized by the fact that once Harry's gone through the tunnel and he emerges in the candy shop, the mm-hmm. first thing he thinks of is the look that would spread over Dudley's piggy face if he could see where Harry was now. Yeah. Right? Which obviously Dudley can't because his body is too fat for admittance into that magical space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then that happens again twice with Sirius Black, right? That it explicitly says Sirius Black only gets out of Azkaban because he's so thin. And again, that's how he fits out of the window of Flitwick's office. Mm-hmm. So this constant sort of recurring references to thin bodies being the bodies that can be admitted through spaces versus the fat bodies which are already sort of in stasis constantly staying still and then that image of you know if Sirius is the extreme of thinness Marge is the extreme of fatness Mm -hmm. who actually gets magically blown up until she occupies an entire room yeah right Mm -hmm. and it's just it's so surprising to me to find such a an incredibly conservative and cruel trope being one of the the primary structuring logics of a novel that is ostensibly about not judging people based on their appearances. Yeah, yeah. On that joyful note, do you want to talk about prisons? I do, I do. Let's talk about the magical justice system and how deeply unjust it is. We have to talk about Dementors because we have heard of them before, but we've never, we just have no idea what we've gotten ourselves into until we encounter them. I documented sort of the first references to the mentors as we go through just to see how sort of we're introduced to them as figures and the way that they're brought up in the book. The first moment is when Ernie, who's the driver of the night bus, says that he would rather blow himself up before setting foot in Azkaban, Mm -hmm. right? And this is part of a continual theme that the book's going to establish, which is the relation between death and imprisonment, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really important because when we're talking about a penal system, we're talking about capital punishment versus life in prison. That's the logic of it. It's established very early on that Dumbledore hates the Dementors, Mm -hmm. that he doesn't want them anywhere near his school. Mm -hmm. George mentions that most Azkaban prisoners go mad in there. Lupin describes the Dementors as soulless and evil. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting because we haven't encountered actual evil in these books much. And Lupin is... We implicitly trust Lupin. And so the fact that he is identifying these characters as evil is significant. Yeah. Yeah. It suggests that that's how we are, are to read them. And then Hagrid gives us another very interesting piece of information when he says that the Dementors don't care if you're innocent or not, as long as they have humans to feed on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the idea there is that the Dementors, that's a, an extension of the Dementors evil, that the Dementors do not represent justice right. in this world. They represent cruelty yes. and suffering. Yeah. In in the guise of punishment. It's supposed mm. to be punishment, but always at question in this book is who deserves that kind of punishment? Yeah. Does anyone really deserve that kind of punishment? Yeah. I mean, Lupin, again, who is our sort of moral compass in this book, says to Harry, do you really think anybody deserves that? Mm-hmm. Right? And Harry at one point thinks that Sirius does. Yeah. Um, but we know that by the end, Harry doesn't think Sirius does. No. Right? No. And so we are left with that question that Lupin a- has asked us, is anybody bad enough to deserve yeah. what the Dementors will do to them? So at the end, when Harry decides that Peter deserves Azkaban, it's only because he can't cope with the idea of his father's two best friends murdering someone. Mm-hmm. The idea of actually committing murder and not being murdered, but the idea of two fundamentally good people committing murder is more terrible to him than somebody experiencing this kind of lifetime internment of of horror and cruelty. And so we get at the true function of the Dementors, which is to be a simplistically vilified other who can be responsible for all of the cruelty that's involved in delivering punishment, Mm -hmm. right? That if you want a world in which um, you can punish people who have done truly terrible things, but you don't actually have to think through the ethics of what you're doing to them, Mm -hmm. what you do is give them not into the hands of other humans, but into the hands of monsters. Because then it's the monster's fault what happens to them. It's not 
Like, the villain in this book isn't Cornelius Fudge. No. Oh, no. The person who is ostensibly responsible for the justice system in the wizarding world, Mm -hmm. right? It's the Dementors. And so the humans or the wizards, I guess wizards are human? I'm not sure. I think so. Yeah, they're not muggles. Humans humans are not responsible for evil anymore, right? Evil gets to be sort of pushed off into the hands of the Dementors. Mm -hmm. um, And everybody else can keep their hands clean. Yeah. So there's this moment early, early on when Harry believes that he's on the run from the Ministry of Magic after he's blown up Aunt Marge. And when Fudge, I can't find it in the book, when Fudge finds him, Harry is positive that he's going to be expelled and that he might go to Azkaban. And Fudge kind of laughs this off and says, we don't send people for trifles like blowing up their ants. Which is incredible and is completely contradictory because in the previous book, they sent Hagrid to Azkaban for no reason. Hagrid had done nothing. The reason why they sent Hagrid to Azkaban, and we see this very much in this book as well, is because the wizarding penal system is not interested in evidence. Buckbeak's trial is a perfect parallel to this as well. The wizarding penal system is not interested or dependent on evidence Everything depends on witness statements and the influence of people with power. And as a result, you get people being imprisoned and being subject to this kind of psychological and emotional torture who have absolutely no reason to be there whatsoever. Yeah. The line, the, I found the line. Mm-hmm. It's after Fudge says, we don't send people to Azkaban just for blowing up their ants. And, and then it says, but this didn't tally at all with Harry's past dealings with the Ministry of Magic. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't, because it's deeply inconsistent. Yeah, exactly. Right? But perhaps the most disturbing thing here is that this problem of the wizarding world doesn't care about evidence. And mm-hmm. we'll just like send people to Azkaban if we think maybe they're possibly evil. Or we'll just kill them if they're animals. Whatever. Yeah. We don't kill humans, right? That's unforgivable in the wizarding world to kill people. But it is okay to have their souls consumed, which is explicitly described as a fate worse than death. Mm -hmm. So what the fuck? But the most disturbing thing is the implication that the truly innocent Mm -hmm. in Azkaban will maintain their sanity. Yeah, because Sirius says that the thing that kept him from being totally destroyed by the Dementors was the fact that he knew he was innocent, which implies that everybody else is not. And that you will only be fully punished in this prison if you are already evil. Yeah, yeah. Like, at at no point does it suggest to us that Sirius is having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, his experience is fundamentally different from Hagrid's. Like, we know... Well, I, okay, never mind. I kind of want to backpedal a little bit on that. Because when I was talking about this earlier and expressing my anxieties about the way in which Sirius's sanity is presented to us as a kind of reassurance that Azkaban is not so bad if you're innocent because you will be able to mentally withstand it. So at first I I was really troubled by the fact that that was countered by Hagrid's horror at the idea of going back to Azkaban. But I think that by the end of the book, when we see Sirius's desperation to stay free or to at least commit the murder that he was imprisoned for in the first place, if he's going to go back to Azkaban, we do get a sense of of his horror. And we mm-hmm. do get a sense that it is a, an incredibly terrible place. So yeah, I think he wasn't okay. Yeah, no, 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 no. And the way that he's physically described too is having his skin, his sallow skin stretched over his skeleton and matted, filthy hair. And like, it's just, it's completely inhumane. It's, mm-hmm. it's horrible. But I am nevertheless disturbed by the implication that you won't be destroyed if you're innocent, because at least you'll have that to hang on to. Like, that's not okay. That's not enough. That's not sufficient. No. So when you were reading this book, did you keep thinking about Foucault? Just me. I was not. I was not thinking about Foucault. But I do think that Foucault is really good to bring up here. 
So Foucault, Michel Foucault, French theorist, he wrote this book called Discipline and Punish. And to massively simplify his thesis, essentially what he's saying is that between the pre-modern and the modern age, the way that we understood punishment and discipline of criminals changed drastically. Mm -hmm. So he was saying essentially that in the pre-modern age, individuals who were responsible for committing crimes were publicly punished in ways that were meant to be terrifying to Mm -hmm. everybody else. And that everybody else would simply be so scared of the prospect of these monstrous punishments Mm -hmm. that they just wouldn't do them themselves because you're like just afraid that something terrible will happen to you. And in comparison, he says, the modern age is a period of discipline in which you start convincing people to discipline themselves, to monitor their own behavior, to um, structure their lives according to institutions so early that ideally you should never need punishment, Mm -hmm. right? That from day one, you've got people moving through these schools that are themselves just like prisons Mm -hmm. that discipline bodies constantly, that people know that they're constantly under surveillance by a variety of authority figures and different sort of institutions of Mm -hmm. control so that we become a sort of self-governing body, that we're all incredibly disciplined, orderly bodies Mm -hmm. that know exactly how we're supposed to be behaving at any given time. And then we don't break the rules, not because we're afraid of punishment, but because we've had this idea of how we should behave so deeply ingrained in us that we barely question it, Mm -hmm. right? And our penal system aligns with that much more closely now because the penal system now is at least ostensibly more about taking those few subjects who have failed to be properly disciplined and just disciplining them a little extra Mm -hmm. with the ultimate goal of being able to reintroduce them into society as properly orderly subjects, right? And so what this image of the Dementors suggests to us is that the wizarding world is Mm pre-modern, right? It's not a a society of discipline. It's a society of punishment. Yeah. And that might be part of why it looks so monstrous to us mm-hmm. is because we live in an era of discipline where for some reason that form of power, even while we can critique it, doesn't look cruel in the same way that yeah. an outright punishment like what the Dementors do seems. I think that's really interesting because when we see because when we see Harry enter into the wizarding world, in a sense he's entering into this world of which he has no uh, pre-existing sense of discipline, right? Mm -hmm. Like he sort of, when he goes into the wizarding world, he doesn't really know what's allowed and what's not allowed. And he gets these warnings ahead of time Mm -hmm. about his behavior, that his behavior is not acceptable. And it's warnings that he could be facing consequences, like being expelled from Hogwarts. And then we Mm -hmm. learn that expulsion from Hogwarts sometimes goes hand in hand with going to Azkaban. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I wasn't quite thinking... I'm going to think about the idea of Foucault and this idea of disciplining a bit more when we get into the later books and Voldemort's, spoiler alert, return. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think it is especially important later on when there is a sense of everybody is watching you all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Panopticon. Yeah, so I'm not sure, but in general, I'm not sure how to read the Dementors. But I'll say I find them a really another very disturbing dimension of this mm-hmm. world, though in, in a different register than I find the fatness disturbing. Mm-hmm. Because I find the fatness, I read that almost entirely as a sort of symptom of authorial complicity with mm-hmm. an ongoing form of social socially sanctioned hatred. Um, Whereas I think that sort of what's going on with the Dementors is something that's a little bit more sort of embedded and complex. Yeah, like I don't think we were supposed to read the treatment of fatness affectively Mm -hmm. in this book. I think we are supposed to have an affective response to the Dementors. They are supposed to instill in us a sense of horror and despair and fear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Time for Jew Watch! I didn't see any Jews in this book. Haters, beware! You're in for some Granger danger! 
good. Okay. So, I found a theme. Okay. Hermione fixes Harry's glasses a lot. Oh, yeah? Like in every book. Right? When they first meet, she fixes his glasses. In the second book, in Diagon Alley, his glasses are broken again. She fixes his glasses. In book three, they're in the Quidditch game, and he can't see, and so she puts a spell on his glasses so he can see. Hermione's purpose is to help Harry see. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. That her function as a character is to be the one who helps Harry to see more clearly. Oh, man. Oh, my God. A theme. Oh, my God. Did it. Oh, my God. So concludes our segment, Spot a Theme. (sighs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Themes are really satisfying. So on the subject of Hermione being the character whose function is to help Harry see more clearly, I feel like in general, in this book, we see... Hermione becoming something of a moral compass Mm -hmm. for the trio, right? She's explicitly a more ethical subject than Harry and Ron. And that starts from like right at the beginning, that beautiful moment where there's a letter. Oh no, this is from, never mind. This was Hedwig. I misremembered this. Can I just stop and talk about Hedwig for a moment? Okay, hang on a second. (laughs) Did Hedwig write Harry a letter? No, Hermione did, but she's talking about Hedwig. So Hermione's on holiday in France, and she's trying to send Harry a birthday gift. Um, But she's not sure she can get it through customs. And then Hedwig turned up, and here's what Hermione says about Hedwig. I think she wanted to make sure you got something for your birthday for a change. Sorry, we both just broke. Anyway, so in general, Hermione is is affiliated with being a more ethical character. And where that really comes to the forefront is in that scene where Harry and Ron go to visit Hagrid. And they haven't, they've been in this fight with Hermione through most of the book, right? And the fight is surrounding the fact that Hermione's being a bit of a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Um, A real killjoy. She is being a real feminist killjoy mm-hmm. let's say yeah. um that she reports the mysterious gift of the firebolt to mcgonagall mm-hmm. that she threatens to tell on harry for going to hogsmeade that she refuses to what does ron want her to do with her cat like kill it yeah he he wants her to get rid of the cat which like i'm sorry anybody who owns a pet like, you don't, no matter how much of a dick your pet is being, you don't just get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's been a bit of a killjoy, but because we're seeing the book from Harry and Ron's perspective, Hermione basically disappears for a big chunk of the book. We don't know what she's been up to until the two of them show up at Hagrid's. And first Hagrid says, oh, I've been seeing tons of Hermione. She's been coming by to help me out with Buckbeak's case, which... Harry and Ron had forgotten about Completely. because they got a fancy new broomstick and they got distracted by a phallic object. And then Hagrid has to give them a lecture about the fact that they need to be better friends to her yeah. because she's really hurt. Yeah, they're both under the impression that Hermione has been unreasonable and Hagrid is the one who points out to them that it's actually those two who are being stupid. Yeah, Hermione is completely in the right, no matter how annoying it is. Yeah. Yeah. So Hermione is really sort of emerging in this book as as the moral compass of the group, right? As the person who is right almost all the time. And I just sort of want to glancingly gesture to the fact... Can you glancingly gesture? Yeah. Sure. That yeah. I'm doing it. To the fact that uh, the woman as a moral compass trope is a very old trope um, mm. that tends to, you know, affiliate... Um, men with 
action and physicality, whereas women tend to be physically weaker, but associated with morality, kindness, goodness, you know, the angel in the oh, house. Uma. No, wait, not Uma. Una from the fairy, the Spencer's fairy queen. Yes. Una. Yes. Not Duessa. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The women are... <laughs> are more moral than men, right? That's a sort of old trope. And it's a sexist trope. But that's really sort of one of the roles that we see Hermione taking on here. But I would say that her, that the potential sexism of that trope is is um, countered quite effectively by how fucking badass she is in this book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And by the fact that she's extremely smart and hardworking. It's not something that is... I mean, I think we get we get the impression that Hermione is inherently good at things, but she doesn't just sit back and be inherently good at things. She works her butt off in order to be good at things. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that she's naturally good and just and right. Yeah. She yeah. works really hard to be. Yeah, exactly. And that, that hard work is really important. Let's get to that in a moment. Sort of put a pin in Hermione as a hard worker. Because I want to focus on her badassness for a moment okay. um, and point out, I mean, she does a lot of incredibly badass things in this book. She hits Malfoy in the face. I know you don't approve of violence, but mm-hmm. I found that incredibly cathartic. <laughs> um, and I really appreciated that the bullies couldn't counter that because they're too sexist to hit a woman back. Yeah. So she just won that day. Mm -hmm. She also rage quits divination because it's absolute bullshit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that very satisfying as well. Hermione, a little bit off, was really satisfying for me. But more important, throughout the entire book, Hermione knows what's going on. Yeah. Like, while everybody else doesn't... If they had just stopped being dicks and talked to her, they would have figured out what was happening like a hundred pages sooner, right? She knows that Lupin is a werewolf. She has the time turner. She has control over time. She knows like all of the sort of mysteries are under her control with the exception of sort of who Sirius Black is and who Scabbers slash Peter Pettigrew is. Mm -hmm. And guess who knows what's up there? Her cat. Crookshanks knows what's up. The only character more knowledgeable than Hermione? Hermione's familiar. So I just remembered that when she buys Crookshanks from the pet store, she says, can you believe that nobody wanted him? And I feel like that in a lot of ways represents how people treat Hermione. Because the reason, so the reason she becomes friends with Ron and Harry is because of that incident with the troll in book one, right? Like if that hadn't happened... They may have never become friends and she may have just continued to be a loner because she's bossy and a know-it-all and super smart. And people are really pissy around around their peers who are really smart when they're jealous, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. And so I think in a lot of ways, Crookshanks kind of, as a familiar, also functions as a kind of animal parallel to Hermione mm-hmm. in the sense that like... He knows what's up. He's a genius. He's extremely smart. They are both described in this book as being the smartest of their kinds. Ah. Right? And they're both very bushy-haired. Very bushy-haired. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about the fact that Hermione, you know, in addition to being exceptionally naturally talented, exceptionally intelligent, is also exceptionally hardworking, mm-hmm. right? And we have this great plot device through this book where she's taking like a triple course load <laughs> and this, the professors are so convinced that she is a competent student that they've given her control over time mm-hmm. so that she can take a double course load or a triple course load or whatever it is. A lovely sort of exaggerated image of exactly how hard it is that Hermione is working But that is also, you know, as we started to talk about in the last book and becomes much more clear in this one, that is also Hermione's fundamental flaw as a character. Mm -hmm. She has so much faith in the system, Mm -hmm. right? In rules, authority figures, books, in sort of the established system of rules that that while it is also 
most of the time to her advantage, sometimes it works against her, Mm -hmm. right? Most of the time, it's the reason why she knows how to respond in emergency situations, why she's figured shit out about characters before anybody else has. She knows Lupin's a werewolf because she did her homework. You know, she knows how to do spells because she's been practicing. But it also, it it backfires on her, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't believe that... Peter and James and Sirius and Remus could all be Animagi because Animagi are registered. And she looked at the books where they're registered and they weren't there Mm -hmm. because books for her are reality. Yeah. Um, And similarly, as you pointed out when we were talking before, she can't wrap her head around the fact that Buckbeak would be executed despite the fact that she's found legal precedent Mm -hmm. for why he shouldn't be. Yeah. Like I was, I was a little bit, annoyed by how emotional Hermione got about the fact that Buckbeak was going to was going to lose the not just the trial but also the appeal because she you know she like faints and she gets teary and weepy and at first I I was annoyed by this because I felt like it was positioning her as a weak weepy emotional woman but the more I thought about it and the more we talked about Hermione and her faith in books, I realized that it's not its not that she's just feminine and emotional. It's not that reductive. It's much more interesting. It's that she, in this book, is coming to terms with the fact that written records of information are failing her. And that is devastating. She's not... She's not learning that she's wrong about things. She's learning that the entire system on which she relies for truth and information is crumbling underneath her feet. It's it's a lot it's a lot kind of like how Harry feels later on when Dumbledore starts to become mortal instead mm-hmm. of this like immortal godlike figure that he gets to play in the early books, right? Yeah. 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 So Hermione's reliance on the system as something that she can have faith in, I also think is is quite gendered again. Mm-hmm. Um, because Harry and Ron are characters who can be resistant to the status quo. They can not read the books, um, not follow the rules, uh, not attend the classes, and yet somehow their sort of scrappiness Um, And resistance to authority becomes part of both their charm and their success. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hermione needs to work her ass off for everything that she achieves. She needs to get the best grades in school in order to be allowed to be one of the heroes alongside these two boys. Mm -hmm. She needs to be the smartest, the most skilled, the most extraordinary witch of her generation. Right? She can't, I mean, like we were talking about in the last episode, she can't just be a normal character. She has to be a remarkable character. Whereas Harry and Ron can be sort of normal guys. Yeah. And they get away with it. And I mean, that I think says something to us about the way the world is sort of structured. Even in this wizarding world, it's structured to privilege white men. Surprise! (laughs) So surprising, the patriarchy. Just seeps into everything. There's one thing that I want to mention because I just, I loved it so much. And it brings me, it brings me joy. Um, And it is Hermione's freak out (laughs) when in the moment in the Shrieking Shack, when no one knows what's going on yet... And Remus and Sirius hug. Okay, so the way that it happens is this. Lupin was lowering his wand. Next moment, he had walked to Black's side, seized his hand, pulled him to his feet so that Crookshanks fell to the floor and embraced Black like a brother. Harry felt as though the bottom had dropped out of his stomach. But notice that Harry is speechless. And then Hermione screams. And she screams, I don't believe it. Which Screams. She screams it. And, and I can just picture this moment where Hermione is so scandalized and dumbfounded that this is happening. And it's so funny. It's just, I mean, maybe it's not funny the first time you read it. <laughs> I don't know, but it's definitely funny when you know what's going on and you know why Sirius and Remus are hugging, but it's this incredible moment where Hermione has just 
She's at her wit's end. She just, everything has fallen apart. This one last thing, which is that Lupin is a trustworthy, reliable person who she can believe and have faith in. This one final authority figure who she has put her trust in turns out to be hugging a supposed murderer, a supposed mass murderer. And she screams, I don't believe it. She screams it. And it's amazing. She's just so disappointed in the world for not living up to her expectations. It's just like if everybody could just get their shit together and do what they're supposed to, it would work out so much better for her. But everybody keeps insisting on breaking the rules and being very bad. And Hermione hates that. Hermione hates that. But here's, so here's a question I have. Because we have another character, another young character who's very attached to the rules and the status quo in these books. And that's Percy Weasley. Mm-hmm. Right? He, Percy loves rules. Mm-hmm. Um, he really, he loves sort of the order of things. He loves being head boy. Mm-hmm. Um, he believes that, you know, the Dementors are going to help them by being there you know percy has this sort of addiction to order and rules and regulations and bureaucracy Mm -hmm. um that is really comparable to hermione's Mm -hmm. attachment to rules and order and justice and yet while hermione is this you know, remarkably heroic character, Percy ends up going in a pretty dark direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what the difference is between the two of them. For me, mainly, it's because, as you were saying, Percy doesn't have to fight to be recognized by this system in the same way that Hermione does. I mean, to some degree he does because he comes from a poor family, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, his father works for the Ministry of Magic and that's what he himself wants to do. He wants, we know early on that he wants to be Minister of Magic someday, but because Percy is a white man, the rules are there for him. The rules are established by men like him and they are there to ensure the authority of more men like him. Mm -hmm. And I think for Percy, the rules aren't something that he needs to learn in order to be accepted. The rules are a kind of fetish. Like, I think Percy really fetishizes the rules Mm -hmm. because he seems to take a particular pleasure in them. The way that he pins his badge to his chest every time he has to act like head boy as though any of the students would have forgotten that he's head boy in the like 10 minutes that he had it off. Like the fact that he comes into a room pinning the badge to his pajamas. Like these are things that he treasures mm-hmm. and the fact that they give him authority, he takes a tremendous amount of pleasure in that mm-hmm. in a way that Hermione doesn't take pleasure. She's flattered when people tell her that she's smart and clever, but she doesn't have the same kind of... She doesn't want to rub it in people's faces. Yeah, like she doesn't... She's not bragging to people that she's taking more than the regular course load. She's not telling anybody about the time turner. She's not... I mean, she wants very much to do well in these classes, but she's not rubbing her achievements in other students' faces, Mm -hmm. right? It's a sort of an internal need to do well to master the things in her life rather than a desire for sort of the outward trappings of authority and power. Yes. Yeah. 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 So in conclusion, Hermione is great Mm -hmm. and is clearly the hero of this book. Yeah. Uh, I dare say the series. (laughs) Our lives. And so at last, we come to final revisions in which we take turns asking each other questions. It's my turn to ask this week and Marcel's turn to answer. My first question, Harry receives a firebolt. Mm -hmm. It is a surprise gift. We know it has been sent to him by his very wealthy godfather. Um, We know that uh, he wants to keep it without question that Hermione questions the safety of this object and it is taken away from him for a while until he can be reassured that it is adequately safe and his ultimate possession of it guarantees his triumph in all future Quidditch matches. (laughs) So my question is, is the Firebolt a metaphor for white male privilege? Yes. I think that the Firebolt is a metaphor for 
upper middle class white male privilege. Because mm-hmm. wealth is important there too. Yes. Yeah, because Ron can't have one. And Malfoy could have one if he wanted one. I mean, he does want one. But because Malfoy is in the, we'll call it aristocratic class, old money class, Malfoy doesn't need it to prove his worth in the way that the firebolt functions to prove Harry's worth. Mm. Mm. Very astute. So smart. Very smart. You're so smart. So my second question is about the status of animals in the wizarding world. Okay. So as far as I can tell, we have three distinct categories of animals. There are sentient personality possessing animals like Mm -hmm. Buckbeak and Crookshank. There are the Animagi, Mm -hmm. um, like eventually we find out Scabbers has been this whole time. Mm -hmm. And then there are the animals made out of inanimate objects. Mm. Mm -hmm. And yet we see Crookshank and Sirius in his animal form hanging out together and being buddies. Communicating. Communicating. Buckbeak is able to interact in intimate human ways with other humans Mm -hmm. and as far as we can tell when inanimate objects are turned into animals they behave like animals Mm -hmm. so what is the status of the animal i have a kind of preliminary answer to this question and it comes from my undergrad degree when i took east asian religions Mm -hmm. and we talked about buddhism um and i'm I wish that I could call upon our erstwhile tech support to help me with this question because he would remember better than I would. However, he is probably gone to bed because it is past grown-up bedtimes. Anyway, so the thing that I want to say is that we as um, conscious beings have a, a sense that there are some things that are sentient and some things that are not. So we have what you and I would probably agree, is a ridiculous distinction between humans as being conscious creatures and sentient creatures, but also as having personalities and behaviors, whereas animals, for whatever reason, our culture and society has decided do not have those things. Even though they are sentient, we have somehow decided that it is okay to imprison them and, you know, torture them and eat them and whatever. You guys just keep your tweets on hold for a second. (laughs) So we we draw lines in our culture. Right. So we draw lines between humans and animals. And we know that those lines are relatively artificial and are just kind of socially constructed, right? So I remember learning that this idea of sentience extends beyond just animals. So this table is also sentient. This room, maybe not a room, maybe a room is a concept, not a thing. This oven is sentient. This glass of water is sentient. And because of things like actor network theory, we have ways of thinking about objects as having intentions. And I think I think what the books and what the idea of turning inanimate objects into animate and magical animals suggest to us is that these ideas of sentience extend beyond just humans and animals or humans are animals. So they extend beyond the animal world into other living creatures. So trees are sentient. So why wouldn't this table that is made out of trees be sentient? I really like that. So it's not sort of a division between the animals that are partially human or the animals that have personalities, but rather the sort of expansion of sentience and life having into the many other inanimate objects that you can make a cup into an animal because a cup also has mm-hmm. a, a being. Yeah. Being. I have trouble with that word because my Ottawa Valley accent. <laughs> so what do you make of the fact that all wizards apparently are meat eaters? Yeah, I can't. I can't cope. I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. Because that seems perplexing. If this is a world where animals have, you know, a great deal of agency and autonomy Mm -hmm. um, and individuality where they're treated in this very different way. And yet magically on the table every night appear giant bowls of drumsticks in this way that is 
like the most exaggerated example of our division from the kinds of violence and suffering that go into making the food that we eat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that just points to, as we talked about with the trope of fatness in this book, I think it points to a degree of ignorance or um, blind spots Mm -hmm. on the part of, um, on the part of our author that, that this is just somehow missed. She doesn't maybe catch the the innate irony in, yeah. in setting up that division. Yeah, there are some ironies. Um, or maybe magic means that you can just make meat out of air. Like I mean, in the future, we'll be able tofu. to 3D print meat. Maybe it's all tofu. Maybe they're fucking with the kids and it's a pure vegan diet. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. It's all beyond meat. It's all soy chicken. Well, it's soy steak and kidney pie. Well, that is how I will be imagining it from now on. Thank you so much. Thank you, witches and wizards and warlocks and hags and muggles and squibs and everyone in between for joining us for episode five of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes on our website, ohwitchplease.ca, or on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to drop us a rating or a review. Hufflepuff Panda and Bee Boots have, and they're pretty cool. Don't you want to be like them? Speaking of things that are cool, you can tweet at us at ohwitchplease or visit our Tumblr, ohwitchplease.tumblr.com. Jason has been doing a beautiful job illustrating our episodes with relevant posts, and it's really worth checking out. As always, special thanks to the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? Trevor Chow Fraser. That's our erstwhile tech support. And thanks to those who have tweeted at us. At Karina Soros, at Neil Politan, at Katerina Mary, at Emily Hoven, at Eggspen, at Rachel Babe, at Short to the Point, at Suranoth, at Andrew Bretz 001, at Basil at Debeckle at Ranochka at RC Veter at Bookish Spoonie at Matt Domville at History Boots at SM Arbuthnot at Debbie Kinsey at Physics Katie and everyone else who's following and subscribing and spreading the good word of the Witch Please Coven. Next episode, you can look forward to a very special guest, the winner of our sign-off contest at Neil Politan, who chose to join us for the movie adaptation of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. And speaking of sign-offs... Later, witches! Witches!